Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I never do an event without that horrible feeling. Um, will I walk out and there, there won't be anybody, anybody there? <laughs> Hello and welcome to the final episode of Season 2 of Write-Off, the podcast about writing rejection and how people get through it. Thank you so much for joining me again this season. I do like making this podcast so much. It's a real pleasure to interview such interesting people and to share what they say with you, so thank you all very much for listening. If you like what you hear, please do go and rate or review the podcast on your Apple Podcast app if you listen to it there. It really helps new people find the pod and helps me continue to make it. Some exciting news. I'm doing a free online event on the 12th of May with Jericho Writers, this season's sponsor, called Write Off in Reverse, where I'm going to be answering questions about my own writing journey and what I've learned from all the people I've interviewed. Please join us. It's going to be so much fun. I'll put the link to sign up in the show notes. And also do remember that write-off listeners have a special discount on Jericho writing courses. Listen out for the details a little later in this intro. Okay, so our guest for this final episode of the season is the one and only Leanne Moriarty. It's hard to express quite how much I love Leanne's writing. I have read all of her books, some of them many times, And I just think she combines such a good eye for women's interior lives and the complex issues we confront in ordinary everyday life with such a sense of humour and unique momentum. It was a complete thrill to interview her and she's just as lovely to talk to you as you'd imagine. Leanne published her first novel at 38, spurred on when her sister Jackie, also an author, was published first. Although Leanne's first attempt, a children's book, was, she says, rejected by everyone. I love listening to Leanne talk about sibling rivalry and support and the embarrassment of that first rejection. 
Before The Husband's Secret and Big Little Lies became bestsellers, she also spent years as a midlist author and is very honest about some of the little humiliations she endured before hitting the big time, like doing events when no one turned up, and how she still holds her breath when she walks into a bookshop to see if they stock her book there. I love most of all Leanne's observation that she's always trying to get back to the simple joy of writing she had as a child, unencumbered by publishing or expectations. I hope you enjoy listening to her as much as I did. Before we get going, I just want to say something about Write-Off's sponsor this season. Dealing with rejection is just one part of a writer's life. Jericho Writers are with you for every word. They are all about embracing the entire journey, rejections and all, and are committed to helping you hit your writing goals whatever stage you're at. Their inspiring courses, editorial services and events have launched writing careers, and members benefit from heaps of additional content such as video courses, masterclasses and weekly live online events, many of which I've enjoyed myself. By becoming a Jericho Writers member, you can get insight into the world of agents and publishers, power through your plot problems, level up your prose style and polish your submission before it lands in an agent's inbox. Plus, you'll be learning alongside a worldwide community of writers who will keep you motivated and on track, even when a rejection rolls in. Listeners of the podcast can get an exclusive 15% discount on membership by going to jerichowriters.com forward slash join dash us and entering the code write dash off. I will put that in the show notes. So let's hear from Leanne. Myself and my next sister down, uh, we were writers and I'm 15 years older than my youngest sister. So when Jackie and I were writing, she was, Nicola was just a baby uh, and we both used to just love writing stories. And when I look back on it, I always think of it as such an uncomplicated love of writing that I had back then. It feels so much more complicated now. So then it was just something like riding my bike and writing stories. They were quite equal in my in my mind. Now I'll now I'll sit down and write a story. And so I always say that um, whenever I sit down to write now, I'm always trying to get back to that uncomplicated feeling that I had as a child. Mm. What do you think about writing is so enjoyable for children? Just making up a story. It's just using your imagination. Uh, maybe being in charge, being in charge of a world. Uh, uh-huh. Which yeah, I do still love that now. Um, just it was just really simple just the fun of making something up and what sorts of things did you write I mean as an adult professional writer you have such an eye for the nuances of domestic life was it that sort of thing as well that you were interested in as a child or was it more sort of fantastical kid stuff I I think I wrote a little bit of everything probably depending on whatever I was reading at the moment and so I I can see the influence definitely of Ina Blyton. Um, mm. So I do always say that I sound suspiciously English for a, a little Australian girl. Uh, <laughs> and so there's lots of, um, you know, oh, what a jolly good idea and things like that. Um, <laughs> and, you know, smuggling. There was the, the, the one book that I've um, still got is called The Secret of Dead Man's Island. And they're... Um, you know, there are smugglers on the on the island. So it's definitely all comes from the famous five. 
That's interesting. And actually, that reminds me of the last anniversary, one of your books, where you do have an island with a big secret. So I suppose some of those things have endured. Oh, oh, definitely. Definitely. You know, and I'm sure there was a little girl in that book called Serena, called Siri. And I feel like I even used a very similar a little character to that. Those characters stay in your head. Um, and I think she may have made an, an appearance in some of my later books. Mm-hmm. And am I right in thinking that your dad used to pay you to write little things and kind of find them as almost as manuscripts? Oh, he Yes, he definitely he commissioned us to write um, books for him. So when he discovered that we liked to write, he said, well, I'll, I'll give you your very first publishing deal and he would pay uh, a dollar for an exercise book filled with words. He didn't, I don't think he really did anything um, with the books. <laughs> he just, and who knows if he, <laughs> I don't even know if he read them. Uh, it was more the, the making, making us feel important. Uh, and really and and taking it seriously so I think that was something really special that he did that he validated um, our our choices and he would have done the same for whatever our interest was for all six of us you know if there was something that he loved to do his thing was because he started his own business so his thing was you know if you can find something that you love to do and somebody will pay you to do it that there's nothing better than that. That's such a wonderful thing. I mean, I've said this before on this podcast, but I did a writer's course a couple of years ago. And I mean, I'm a professional writer as a journalist, but when I started creative writing, there was a part of me that felt a bit silly. And I remember vividly when my tutor said, no, you're all writers now. Um, And it's, and it, and it was very, it had a lot of impact. It felt very important to have somebody validate that desire to write. So to have somebody Mm. do it as a child is is probably extremely helpful. (laughs) Yeah. And it's funny because even now I sometimes have days where I sit down and it's almost embarrassing to sit down, especially right at the beginning of a novel before you have any momentum um, and to think how embarrassing I'm sitting down and just making stuff up. It can, it can feel feel foolish. So anything you can do to treat it, to, to make you take yourself more seriously is what is what you need. Yes. Okay, so you, as an adult, you went into copywriting. Is that right? What was that like and and was there a sort of specter of creative writing of the creative writing you could be doing sort of sitting on your shoulder the whole time bothering you in any way yes well actually I I meant to go into journalism so it was always um uh, I was going to be a journalist and I told everybody that um but I was never very I organized I um I hadn't thought what was required um and I missed out. I didn't apply for a cadetship. Um, and somebody said to me, why don't you try advertising for a year and then come back and try again? So I went into advertising and I did actually enjoy I enjoyed that. I had enough of my dad, that the sort of business side of it. I liked the fact that it was um, using the creative side of it, but with this business element to it. So... Anyway, I, so I went into advertising and, yes, I definitely always had that um, uh, thing in my head that I should be writing. I remember my sister and I sometimes, and I think this has actually happened twice over the years that we've said we'll do something together, 
I think I wrote the first chapter of something, she wrote the second chapter, and the second chapter was so good, I thought, I can't, I can't compete with that. Uh, oh, wow. and, I, <laughs> and I just stopped. So that, uh, that was that one. And I kept, yeah, I kept writing a, a few first chapters of novels that didn't go any further. And I know that the only thing that I completed in all those years was a book for my for Nicholas, um, so I must have been 25 and it was for her 10th birthday uh, and I wrote a whole chapter book for her. So that was the only thing I finished because it was a gift for her 10th birthday and then the, the main character was called Nicola, which it, it did, that did many years later, I did publish publish those books. Ah, yes, the Nicola Berry series. So, mm-hmm. so that is for your sister. That is, is the first in the Nicola Berry series, a version of that book that you gave to her. Exactly, yes, yeah. That's amazing. What a wonderful <laughs> sister you sound like. <laughs> um, okay, so you were writing these chapters and sort of, did you feel bad? Did you feel like you should be doing more in some way and, and just weren't? good enough or not quite committed enough or how did it feel to be sort of starting and stopping in that way um I don't know how I'm not sure how bad I felt except that I know when I did finally start writing again how good I felt (laughs) and I hadn't actually realized how much I was missing it Uh, and that the feeling I had when I wrote Three Wishes my main feeling during that whole time was a sense of relief that I was finally doing it but I wasn't conscious through those years I I didn't feel a sense of of frustration or or not a conscious sense of frustration okay and so your sister Jackie wrote a book Mm. didn't she and it it did really well and that was when you signed up for your master's in creative writing is that right Yes, well, it was before it was, uh, it was probably before it was even published, to be honest. It was just the fact that she'd finished something and it had been accepted for publication. So I always remember the feeling of I was really happy for her because I love her dearly, so I was proud of her, but at the same time feeling pure envy that she'd finally gone ahead and <laughs> achieved that childhood dream. So, yeah, that was feeling sorry for Celia. Can you hear a Labrador in the background? I, I can. You? Sounds very yeah. cute. <laughs> <laughs> Let me go get rid of it. Of course. Just... Yeah, sure. Sorry, are you there? <laughs> yes, I am. Hi. <laughs> she was um, tapping on the window trying to get back in. <laughs> oh, so sweet. <laughs> I would like a dog, but only after my children are a bit bigger. <laughs> yes. Uh, that's, yeah. that's quite enough. Um, <laughs> okay. So, um, so you were envious of Jackie although at the same time very pleased for her and then I know that the three wishes happened but there was also a children's book right how did that fit into things in that time scale there was so the very first thing I wrote uh, was called the the animal olympics so it was a children's book uh, all about uh, the different animals that would win each olympic sport if they um if they entered so you know the flea would win the high jump uh, because it was around the time of the year coming up to the Sydney Olympics, so the 2000 Olympics. Um, okay. And it was it was fun, but yep, that no, that was um, that was rejected by by everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and was that something you wrote before you signed up to the masters? 
but oh, after oh, yes. yes definitely yes but yeah. but in a response to Jackie's book or sort of completely in a response to Jackie's book and then it was after that book was rejected and and how did that and, feel did you have an agent and were you doing that in collaboration with him or her no, I didn't have an agent. I, so I tried to get an agent. So first it was rejected. Um, I couldn't get an, an agent. And and then I sent it off to different publishers. And, yeah, I just got no no interest at all. That must have felt a bit rubbish after Jackie's <laughs> book had been accepted for uh, publication. Yes, it's a, it's a embarrassing. And, uh, and maybe I felt a little bit ashamed. Maybe, um, I mean, I, I did put... I put work into it, but perhaps I didn't put enough of my heart into it. And I, I think the feeling I had was almost as if they, they know what I'm doing. They can see that I'm just trying to, to keep up with Jackie. But I still think it was an okay book. <laughs> I mean, I it, sounds, get... <laughs> it sounds really good. I think it's a really good idea. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I still, um, when I wrote uh, my children's books, I'd sometimes do some school visits and I'd tell the children about that and I'd say, it sounds good, doesn't it? Um, just so I could hear all those little children saying, yeah, yeah, that could have been good. <laughs> You'll feel a little bit defensive about it. But I do honestly think it's not like I'd put years and years into it um, or enough of my own heart into it. Yeah. What sort of comments did you get back when so it was rejected by agents and then also did you send direct to publishers? Yeah. What sort of things were they saying? I actually honestly don't remember any of the any of the comments. There wasn't anything in particular that stood out or or that hurt my feelings. Um because I can certainly remember things that have hurt my feelings from many, many years ago. So there mustn't have been anything in particular. It was just no thank you. Okay. And so, I mean, it sounds like you're, you sound like quite a kind of circumspect person, but was it the case that you sort of took all these rejections and went, never mind, I'm going to do a master's and do something again because I really enjoy this? Uh, no. I must have. I must have known of or heard of other people who'd done a masters. I'm. I can't really can't remember exactly how I felt. I don't know. I don't know that I felt devastated by that book being um, rejected, as I would have felt devastated if um, if Three Wishes, if my first novel was rejected. Maybe I just felt a, a slight sense of shame that. Yeah, that you, you, that I probably didn't try hard enough with that one, um, and so now I should get serious about it. That's interesting. So you kind of knew quite quickly that it it felt like a training book to you. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Looking yeah. back, that's interesting. Okay, and then so then three wishes, which is your debut novel, happened, mm. and and um, I'm just going to say for the uninitiated, Leanne's debut is about triplet sisters and their similarities and differences and their kind of the kind of fractiousness of their push-pull relationships and it's an interesting one um it's a really really great book and it's an interesting one because although it is a page turner it's it's not a thriller a category that some of um Leanne's later books maybe fall into and in some ways I also feel like it's quite similar to your latest book Apples Never Fall because it is primarily about family can you tell me, Leanne, a little bit about where the idea for Three Wishes came from and, and how it evolved on that course? It definitely came, it came from a short story 
See, I haven't thought about a lot of this in years, so I, I must have been writing short stories because um, and why, why did I even write that short story? I know that uh, the first uh, chapter of the book, I used this idea I'd had for a short story, which I, I'm sure I never tried to get published, just about an incident in a restaurant and different people in the restaurant are all telling the story. So it goes from... Um, the waitress and then a couple dining in the restaurant and then somebody else and they're all describing an incident. Uh, mm. And so that was the opening scene. And and then I and then you had to bring in um, your work each week. So I was just writing a little bit more. And again, as I've now continued to do, I, I didn't have a plan, so I had no idea how it was going to how the novel was going to end. But then you you bring it in each week, and did we? I think we read it out to each other, and the, so it was just a small group of us doing the masters. And my main memory of that time is they used to the other people in the class would say nice things about the work. Um, I, I'm sure they also gave criticism too. Um, I've, I've heard about actually some, um, you know, some classes where people are terribly cruel um but this, this was a, a very it was all all women um and all being incredibly supportive of each other and I can remember coming home on those nights and um my cheeks would be red I can feel I can remember putting my hand to my to my cheek and being flushed with um with the praise that I'd got so it was just a really wonderful time and that that sensation that I described before of um of relief that I was actually mm. writing and people people saying nice things each week it, it was wonderful a wonderful year yeah having had the experience with um the animal olympics did you ever worry at that time <clears throat> that your attempt at a novel wouldn't be good enough or did you feel as you were doing it that it was or that in any case you were enjoying it enough for that not to matter oh no i i, I worried because i can remember one of the lecturers she had she had previous students, uh, the covers of books that they'd had published, um, she'd put them up on the door of her office. And I used to look at that door and think, imagine having my cover there. That was all I could dream of. But, uh, yeah, I definitely <laughs> uh, could imagine it, it not happening. But at the same time, yeah, just I just I, I think I put all that out of my mind, that I've, at least I was doing it. So I, I didn't allow the agony of that, of wondering whether it would get accepted. I, to, I didn't think about that until, you know, the, the year or so afterwards. For, um, in that first year, it was just the pure pleasure of writing it. I think that's such a good point, just at least you're doing it. Because I think a lot of people punish themselves for not doing it well enough or, you know, and then mm. and then maybe they're not doing it at all. So yes. um, it's really interesting that, that The Three Wishes came from a short story where you had already got that style that you later use a lot in in um in a lot of your books but particularly in big little lies where you have all lots multiple perspectives by mm. which i don't mean the kind of traditional different points of view technique although you also have that but this kind of gossipy sort of lots of people looking at the same event and, and sort of giving their opinion on it um, mm. And that, so I, I guess what I'm saying is it sounds like you sort of found your voice quite quickly that that came to you and was there from the start. Yes, yeah, you're probably right. And, you know, I, I do wonder, I can't even think what 
that particular short story. Oh, yes, I know something. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you can see you continue to um, come back to similar similar themes. I, I remember I had an idea about four people going out to, oh, I don't know if I even want to say it. Maybe I'll still use it one day. Um, the, the idea was um, you, you go out to meet um, uh, somebody that your husband works with and, and another couple and you're at this restaurant and it turns out that he, um, he was your, your date rapist from many years ago and then she throws a fondue fork at him and so that was that scene and yeah, all the different people watching this scene unfold in the restaurant. Not going to give any particular spoilers for any particular bit, books, but yes, your, your ideas do, you know, they're kind of. Um... <laughs> hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Boiling, boiling over from the beginning. It's so interesting. Yes, yeah. mm. Hello, Writerish Podcast listener. I'm Daniel Ford, co-host of the Writer's Bone Podcast and founder of the Writer's Bone Podcast Network. At least one person that I know of has called me the Norman Lear of podcasting, but I'm here to talk about our flagship, Writer's Bone. We're a literary podcast that believes in the power of the written word. My co-host, Stephanie Ford, and our Friday morning coffee host, Caitlin Malqui, believe that storytelling can excite us, educate us, and at its best, unite us. Our mission is to promote authors of all backgrounds, races, creeds, and experiences. Since 2014, we've had the privilege of talking to bestsellers, debut authors, screenwriters, actors and actresses, and so many others that embrace creative endeavors. We hope you'll subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts, because we have no intention of stopping anytime soon. And our simplest, perhaps our best advice, keep writing, everyone. Okay, so you, you wrote Three Wishes, and then how easy was it for you to get an agent? And, and that, that was obviously, that was published in um, 2004 when you were 36, I think. How, how, what was the process of getting an agent and publishing like? Uh, so I sent it off to, to Curtis Brown here in Australia. Uh, so it was my sister's agent. So I was very lucky wow. that I had the, the contact there. Uh, and I can remember, I can remember posting it. I can still see myself exactly where I stood on the street and, um, watching it go, uh, into the mailbox. Uh, and, but I did hear relatively quickly that, that they wanted to represent me. And I can still remember that phone call. And I, cause I can remember playing it, the, um, the message on my voicemail 
to a girlfriend and her listening to it. And I can remember her grabbing me by the arm as she heard uh, what she had to say. So that was that's a special a special memory that still gives me goosebumps when I think back to that. Yeah, that's interesting because after you must have had so many moments of so many calls about bestsellers and so many moments of feeling like a success, but that's the one that kind of sticks, is it? Exactly. Yeah, and and also I, you know, I can't actually remember listening to it myself the first time. It's playing it to her and her because you know what a special friend. Her pleasure for me is the lovely the lovely memory. Yeah, um, and then did it did it sell quite quickly to publishers? Yes. So then she then gave it to Pam McMillan, and um, and then they accepted it. So it it did sell. It did sell quite quickly. That's a that's a nice start. <laughs> it, was. Um, it was. And and then I know you've mentioned this before, and I wanted to dig into it a little bit more. You so you wrote three wishes. You then wrote several novels before the husband's secret was published in two thousand and thirteen, and that was your first bestseller. And then, of course, mm-hmm. Big Little Lies, which kind of went stratospheric, was was I think the year after that. In the interim period, when you wrote quite a few novels, all of which I've read, all of which I love, what was it like for you? I think you've described it as being a, a rather disparagingly a mid-list author I think it sounds kind of meaner than it's meant to um what 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 did that feel like because for a reader they feel like books that were enjoyable to write you know they feel like a lot of fun was it a fun Mm. time yeah it definitely was a fun time and I felt so lucky that I got to do that um for a living and you know I so I had been in an advertising copywriter, a freelance copywriter. So I can remember slowly letting go of um, of the clients that I I liked um, the least um, one by one by one. So I was making I was making a living from it, and the writing part was just was great. There were tiny humiliations along the way, which more um, have to do with the actual publishing of it. And the, so once a book's out. You know, um, doing events, so um, reader events where um, nobody turns up. Oh, gosh. So, <laughs> what, so no, actually nobody. Oh, so I've had events that had to be cancelled. So that's so, it's so embarrassing where they say, well, we're sorry, um, you know, <laughs> that nobody's called to, um, to book a ticket. Oh. I can remember one event. And so this was... Uh, so nowadays when I go on tour, I do have publicist who comes with me and, you know, sort of looks after me, which is, which is very nice. Um, but back then uh, I would just be sent on my way. Uh, so I can always remember turning up at events. Um, and I, it, it seemed to happen all the time that I would get there and I'd, obviously I'd get there early and I'd be a little bit nervous. And the people, you know, the librarian would say, um, are you here to see the author? And I'd have to say, well, I am, I am the author. Um, and it was obvious that that um, that I looked like a, a very excited, nervous fan out for a big, big night out. And so I can remember one where that happened. She said, are you here to see the author? And then there were only two people in the audience. So it's awful when you see all the empty chairs and you have to go up and stand you know on the podium (laughs) and there's just two people there and I can remember thinking 
well, these two people, they were so lovely and smiley. And I thought, well, you know, this is embarrassing, but obviously they, they're fans. Um, so I should give all of myself in, in giving this talk to them. And so I gave the talk and told all my little stories about dad commissioning, you know, us to write novels and all that sort of thing, all my origin story. Uh, and then at the end, they, um, they, <laughs> they applauded. And then they, they came up to me and said, oh, that, that was lovely, darling. And then it became clear to me that it was the bookshop's mother, the bookshop owner's <laughs> mother and grandmother. So they couldn't, they didn't get one real person oh, at all. God. <laughs> oh, God. Well, I suppose, <laughs> I suppose it was good practice for you to give your all to the two people for the, for the years later when you had hundreds of people scrambling for those tickets. <laughs> oh, yes, but it was also good practice for all the times that could, uh, that happened again. So there were different versions of that um, and I have to say I never do an event without that that horrible feeling of um, will I you know walk out and there, there won't be anybody anybody <laughs> there <laughs> and also oh the terrible thing is um, do, if you do events with other authors and then you have the signing lines they line you all up and then you can see you're sitting there and all the, the readers are coming up to get their books signed by everybody else. So sometimes you're literally there in the middle of two best-selling authors oh, and there are huge lines for them and nobody for you. And it's the, it's so, <laughs> you know, you have to smile and look gracious and um, and look like you don't mind. And, and, and sometimes people will catch your eye and you have to smile and say, as if, yeah, that's, this is okay. That's fine. <laughs> That sounds so stressful. It's <laughs> horrendous. Um, I know a lot of people, a lot of writers worry if they're not a bestseller that, you know, I know your books were selling quite well, but I know a lot of writers worry that, you know, how, of how they're, about how their career trajectory is going to go mm. if they're not selling millions. At that time, were you just sort of writing and feeling comfortable in the profession feeling kind of confident of your continued reasonable success yeah I definitely wasn't thinking I wish I could uh, apart from those times when I'd have those events where nobody turned up and also um what would sometimes happen uh so it's not you, you know you have your book published but then you need the bookshops to actually stock your book so what would happen is I'd go into bookshops and I'd look around and you know my, my book wouldn't be there and I still I have to say I still go into bookshops and I still hold my breath because um, that was sort of a version of that that feeling of 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 shame that you know there's nobody coming to your event or, and you go into a bookshop and you think you're an author but um, you, you know your, your book's not actually on the shelves so I, I still I still don't exhale until I see until I see one of my books. And, of course, often it still can happen that they're not necessarily there. And so those, those were the two things, but that only happened each time a new book came out. In between, when I was actually writing the books, I, I then was blissfully unaware because, I, I, you know, I was still getting published and I still felt very lucky to keep getting publishing deals. So then I'd put all that aside and, until the, the next book came out. Mm. 
And so in 2013, The Husband's Secret was published and that shot into the bestseller list globally, I think. And can you remember what that felt like? Do you remember the call? And Yes, uh, definitely. So I uh, got the call uh, in a car park and it was in the morning. I just dropped my little boy off at preschool, my little girl. Uh, was still little enough that I was carrying her on one hip because I know I took the call in the car and and it was from my American editor and agent to say that the husband's secret had hit the New York Times bestseller list because I can always remember whispering into her ear as we walked into the cafe and saying, mummy just became a New York Times bestseller. Um, <laughs> And we, I was going to have muesli for breakfast that day um, and instead I had uh, waffles with maple syrup. So <laughs> I, I can still taste, whenever I hear the words um, New York Times bestseller, um, I can taste maple syrup. Um. <laughs> did you have an inkling when you were writing it or were you? did you know it was going to be marketed in a different way that, that gave you a kind of sense of anticipation that, that this one would do very well and, I, and I'm asking that also I think with one of the things I find so interesting about The Husband's Secret which is a brilliant book it's quite morally complex I don't want to give any spoilers away but from the beginning to the end it's a constantly surprising book dealing with some quite difficult ethical issues with your with your kind of classic very readable style and I find that a very interesting combination and I it's it's I find it interesting that 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 one kind of shot into the bestseller list because sometimes mm. the ones that shot, shoot into the bestseller list aren't the more morally complex ones so I, I, mm. I wonder if that's why in fact but it's I, I find it surprising in some ways. Yeah I, I'm trying to think back I, do, I can remember saying I think to one of my sisters this is either my best book or my or my worst book um, because it did feel it felt different from the others and I definitely had taken a darker turn but I, I was never I was never it wasn't something that I was dreaming of I wasn't really thinking oh I hope I, I become a, a bestseller I was sounds that maybe people won't believe me when I that if I say this so I was a little bit unaware that there was another whole level to reach I was just happy to be published and I I think I would just um, put my head back in the sand once when I'd have those events where nobody turned up or go into the bookshops where my book wasn't there and then I'd just think oh well I'm I'm still getting published I'm still allowed to write so I'd put all that aside Um, so I definitely wasn't thinking I wasn't crossing my fingers hoping for something yet uh, it felt like something that fell into my lap when I got that call. Mm. And then, of course, the next year, I think it was the next year, Big Little Lies was published and did even better. But when mm. you were writing Big Little Lies, did you feel nervous that it might not do as well as The Husband's Secret? Yes, definitely. So that that was my first time. Uh, oh, no, so that is not actually true because I was well into Big Little Lies it was, the, it was the book after that where I started to feel nervous, but I was actually well into Big Little Lies before um, The Husband's Secret came out. So, no, I didn't have that pressure on me when I was writing Big Little Lies. The main thing that happened with Big Little Lies was that I'd, um, I'd started writing a book about with a completely different premise about reincarnation and my American editor had said, what's your next book going to be about? And I told her the premise and she said, 
well, that can't work because I've actually just bought a book with, uh, and it was sort of an extraordinarily similar premise. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, which made me think, have we both, you know, stolen it from an, um, an episode of Law and Order or something? Um, <laughs> but I know I, I read this book later and I know, and then I saw in the acknowledgements and we both read the same nonfiction book. And I, I think that's why it's almost like any fiction writer who read this particular book would automatically be inspired to write, to write a similar sort of um, story. So my main memory of Big Little Lies was I had to give up my um, my reincarnation book. And That's I, so interesting. How far yeah. into it were you? Well, I was into it enough that, that I, was, I was pretty upset to have to put it to one side. And so I, I was sort of still thinking about that. And, and did I, I, I think I had one character making, maybe it wasn't that book, maybe in a future book, I had something about reincarnation. I'm, I still find it, I find those stories so fascinating. You know, when people say um, uh, crazy things, I'm, I'm, I'm sure this is where it came from that, you know, there's things that go around on the internet, terrifying things that your children say, you know, you, you're, you're different from my, my other mother um, oh yeah yeah I just find those so fascinating and I'm sure I saw one of those and then read this non-fiction book anyway so I, I I was a little bit under pressure to to write something fast Gosh, because how I, funny I'd, I'd so, so big little lies nearly never was yes yes exactly yeah <laughs> and it's funny because I was feeling resentful about that in the beginning but then yeah it could it could never have been well, maybe that's quite why it's quite an angry book. <laughs> maybe you were angry. <laughs> maybe, maybe. And it's quite fast paced. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about plotting and I feel like Big Little Lies is a good one to do it with. I know that you don't really plot and that you start with a premise. And mm. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that. And also, yes, when when you, because Big Little Lies it feels like a very plotty book whether mm. you knew who was going to who was going to die and who had done it and once you figured that out how much you had to go back and change yeah so I knew I knew that I would have I think the premise was just this idea of parents behaving badly at a at a school event because I think for quite a while I was call, calling it something like good parents gone bad or or even parents behaving badly. And I had this idea of the um, the women dressed up as Audrey Hepburn, which, and I know I got that from a fellow author, um, Burke Carroll, because we would sometimes do events together and she was going to do, going to a school fundraiser and we were looking for the perfect necklace for her to wear because all the women at her table were going to dress up as Audrey Hepburn. So that's where I got that idea from. And then I always loved the idea of um, a group of men dressed up as Elvis. So I had this idea of the Audrey and Elvis night and that there would, something would happen. And I think I actually thought uh, I would have multiple, <laughs> multiple deaths at this um at the fundraiser uh, but then as the book went on I well without uh, probably doesn't matter at this stage I know I must have decided who who would die because for a long time I had the title was who pushed Perry um, mm. and um, 
but I know I didn't know who it was. And so it's just along the way that I'm thinking maybe it's this, maybe it's that. So I'm, I've mm. continued to write in the same way that I, I think I'm continually thinking of possible solutions and sort of trying them out in my mind and just writing a little bit further and and then thinking, yep, maybe this will work. And I always have this separate document called Things I Need to Fix as I work things out so that then I know, well, now you're going to have to go back and put this in. You're going to have to, you know, certain red herrings that I can put in, certain things that are, are no longer possible. So with the current book, um, it was important that uh, the ma- one of the main characters that he didn't own a mobile phone. And then I realised that in an earlier chapter, I had him sitting there in bed scrolling through his mobile phone. Um, <laughs> so I had to go back and take the phone away from him. So little things like that. Uh, and yeah, I've just I've continued to enjoy writing that way um, because it's it surprise it surprises me along the way. Yes, I mean let's talk about apples never fall actually because that is another good mm-hmm. one. That, I mean it's it's very plotty in the sense that it's intricately arranged because you have lots of points of view from the members of this family, and the mother's gone missing. And the father is under suspicion for having done it, well, having done it, but we don't really know what it is for having caused Mm. her to go missing. And Mm. then we have the perspective of all the adult children. And then we sort of go back in time and and meet the mother and the father and see how their relationship is and so on. But it's quite intricate. How long does it take you once you figure stuff out to go back? And because it's one thing to take out a paragraph about somebody scrolling through their phone, but (laughs) presumably it's a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah, but it's not so much. I'm not one of those authors who does um, one draft and then goes right back to the beginning and then does a second draft and does multiple drafts. I'm always I'm drafting or redrafting as I as I go. So often a way into my writing each day might be to look at that things I need to fix um, document, and then I'll go back in and yeah and take take his phone away and then that allows me to get into the story because it's an easy thing to do. When I first sit at the desk in the morning to think, oh, I'll just rewrite that paragraph now and just in the process of writing, I'm, uh, you know, I'm enjoying my characters again and um, and I, it's almost like I sidle into the story. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not so much that uh, it doesn't feel long because it, it just feels like it's, it's, it's all slowly coming together as I'm writing and so I always like that last chapter I like to pretend as if it did all flow you know when you see um when you see the movies where the um the writer's at the typewriter and they have the the pile of pages next to him or her um I like to um to pretend as if I've written it that way. So I will hold off writing that very last scene or the last paragraph until I can feel like, well, that's it, you know, and then I always like, I like to write the end, um, <laughs> um, even though they don't actually use the words the end. Um, I, I always write them because um, that's such a, an incredible feeling. Yeah. It's interesting because I think a lot of writers get their sense of, kind of accomplishment as they're writing the book from say a word count or or I'm nearly Mm. the end of the first or second draft and so on do you sort of get that internally from a no I just feel that it's coming together in the way that I'd hoped 
And I definitely, I'm a word counter too. So I definitely, I have, because otherwise I'd never, I'd never progress because I am going back and changing things. So I could, editing what I've done the day before. Uh, and I think when you're not a planner, uh, there's a temptation to go back and edit what you did yesterday so you don't have to uh, face the, you know, what's going to happen next. So I'm always writing down um, my word count for the day and then it's quite embarrassing because I do have little, um, I praise myself in this notebook where I said, well done, you know, 1,500 words and I do little balloons and stars. And, um, <laughs> that really um, does sound like you've recaptured the joy of, writing as a child (laughs) (laughs) yes exactly exactly (laughs) what do you think you like most about writing I like it when I'm about two-thirds of the way into the book and I know my characters and uh, the story has momentum and I sit down and things happen that surprise me or it's just those days when um, it's all for those for the wonderful days where you achieve um you know, athletes call it getting into the zone. And um, I think there's that term flow when you achieve creative flow and, you know, the time you're not aware of time passing. So everything's about those days. Um, Mm. And what's the hardest thing? Sorry, Leon, go ahead. Oh, sorry, I was going to say the other other part is just meeting meeting readers at the the other end. The hardest thing is then uh, having the book out there and, Yep, um, and knowing that people can have an opinion on your on your work because when I was writing advertising copy, nobody had an opinion, <laughs> um, and and now it feels like yeah, a lot of people have have opinions, and uh, yeah, it's facing it, it's accepting the fact that of course not everybody can like your work. Uh, and I and I every now and then I think I've uh, I've got there I'm I'm okay now like I'm I've, I have accepted that I'm enlightened um, but then I realise no I can hear something or some little even though I no longer read Amazon reviews or Goodreads reviews some something will find its way to me and yeah no I'm I'm not yet enlightened. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do if you feel? If you've encountered a bad review or you're feeling down about a day you've had writing or something, what do you do to fix it, to make yourself feel better and carry on? Uh, I text my sisters uh, if I've heard something um, bad about my one of my books and my sisters are uh, amazing at saying, that is outrageous. That person has <laughs> no idea what they're talking about. Um, it's just the comfort of those instant texts. That's what we do uh, for each other that, that come back. The, the soothing texts um, come almost instantaneously. <laughs> That's so nice. And, of course, you yeah. have Jackie, who's also a writer, but you also have Nicola, um, Nicola yeah. is, is, is also a writer. And... Yeah. Um, does that do you think that helps? I mean, I know that people often ask you if it feels competitive and you've said no. Does it mm. does it does it help to have people who understand the profession? Do, do they read are they beta readers? No, then then not so much, um, except that we do tend to send each other our work um, when at the same time as we're submitting, 
mainly because, you know, you're always so desperate to get feedback immediately and our only job then is uh, to read it fast and not to send any criticism to uh, only send praise (laughs) and to say it's magnificent, it's a masterpiece, it's the best thing you've ever written, Um, to send over-the-top praise. if that's the arrangement, how can you believe it? <laughs> I know. And I do suspect that each time. <laughs> you're, you're right. <laughs> Don't tell me that because I'm falling for it each time. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> of course it's right. Um, how do you think you would feel today if you carried on in advertising and never written a published book? Mm. I don't know. I think I'd just be, I think I'd be quite snappy and <laughs> And maybe I just have a slight sense of, yeah, of frustration or because I do always say that I don't think if it wasn't for Jackie writing um, Feeling Sorry for Celia first, I don't think that I would have done it. And she always says that she that she believes I would have, but I think I really needed her to do it first. And as I said, that was, it was just a sense of relief when I was writing Three Wishes. And I still experience that now because, um, you know, once I finish a book and I think I'm going to have a rest uh, and I won't write for a while, and then I just start to get snappy. I think it just improves my mood. So I, I just think I'd be mildly bad-tempered. <laughs> well, I think we all would be too if we're not having your books. <laughs> yeah, that's a nice thing um, to say. It's true. Um, I think that's all I need, uh, Leanne. Thank you so much for your time again. Is there anything else you would like to add that we haven't talked about, that I haven't asked you about? No, I can't think of anything. I always think, oh, I could have done that better. Um, this is <laughs> this is where the self-loathing comes in afterwards of um, doing this sort of thing. But you can, you, um, you can cut out the boring parts, can't you? I don't think there are many boring parts in that. <laughs> but, uh, do you do you find doing interviews difficult? Because you don't sound like you do. Oh, that's nice of you. Um, no, I do. Be, I I'm, I hate the fact that I'm I'm part of me is still listening to myself. I'd like to get to a point where, and I feel like maybe when I'm sixty, that will happen. Where I just talk and not think the whole time. Don't say that. You sound like this. You're not sounding grateful enough or humble enough or or articulate enough or yeah it'd be good to that's another level of enlightenment when you just talk thank you so much for listening to write-off if you enjoyed it i'd be delighted if you fancied leaving a rating or review on your podcast app that really helps people find the podcast if they've not heard of it before or on twitter where you can find me at francesca Steele. Don't forget that I list my guests' books at my online bookshop, which is uk.bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash Francesca Steele. Details in the show notes. If you buy books there, you are helping me fund this podcast. So thank you and see you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365 day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.